Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we are talking with Dr. Philippe Dini, a senior professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Philippe is the author of The Genocide Against the Tutsi and the Rwandan Churches Between Grief and Denial, published by Boydell and Brewer this past February. Focusing on the period of the genocide in 1994 and the subsequent years up to 2000, Philippe examines in detail the response of two churches, the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church. While some Christians, Protestants, as well as Catholics took risks to shelter the Tutsi people, others uncritically embraced the interim government's view that the Tutsis were enemies of the people and some even priests and pastors assisted the killers. The church leaders only condemned the war. They never actually denounced the genocide against the Tutsi. Drawing on interviews with genocide survivors, Rwandans in exile, missionaries and government officials, as well as church archives and other sources, this book is the first academic study on Christianity and the genocide against the Tutsi and explores questions like why did some sectors of Rwandan churches adopt an ambiguous attitude toward the genocide? What prevented the church's acceptance and how should we account for the efforts made by other sectors of the churches to remember and commemorate the genocide and rebuild the pastoral programs in depth. Philippe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, if you could start the interview by, you know, introducing yourself a bit. Yeah, I don't know. I wear different hats. (laughs) One of them, 
probably why I'm here. I'm an academic. I'm teaching at the School of Religion, Philosophy and Classics of the University of KwaZulu-Natal for just about 30 years. I've been for a long time and done quite a bit of work of Christian history in Southern Africa. And more recently, as you know, in Rwanda. And it's a state university with a sort of faculty of theology mix. So that's one thing. Um, I'm also a member of the Dominican order. I'm a Dominican brother, a member of religious order. But at the same time, it's a bit unusual, but in South Africa, that's, that's, that's what's possible and necessary. Along the way, I've been involved with a pro project with abandoned children. I adopted some of them. I raised them. I became a parent to them. And actually, I still live with them now. So while being a religious, I'm also a father in that sense. What else? Yeah, I've been quite a bit in the NGO world. And maybe that's relevant to our discussion. I tried to do history differently from what I used to do when I was still in Europe, because I must say I was born in Belgium. And the first part of my work was on the uh, history of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the early modern period, 16th and 17th century. Since I, I relocated to South Africa in 1988, I, I saw the need to develop to take seriously all testimonies and to develop skills in what's called oral history. And later, what we call now memory studies, how people remember, commemorate or not, how does it work, what does it mean? And, and obviously that type of work has prepared me for this project on the one and the genocide against the Tutsi. Yeah. And, you know, before we dive into the book itself, could you tell us about how you came to this project? What about the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church's response to the Rwandan genocide struck you? Well, I must be honest, in doing the genocide, as you know, it, it, it started the the night of the 6th to the 7th of April, 1994. And it went on until July. In a certain way, I missed it because exactly at the same time, it was a good time for us, difficult, but eventually good. When we, we ended apartheid, we had the first election, Nelson Mandela became the president. I was very much involved in it. And honestly, we had no time for anything else. But I became involved, I would say, in 1997, because the master of the Dominican order who knew me well, and we, we knew it before he was a master, he had the idea of a mediation among between Hutu and Tutsi Dominicans in Rwanda and Burundi. They were good people, but they were heavy tension for very quite normal. They were all traumatized, both in both countries, because the two countries experienced a lot of mass violence. And, and I was tasked to, to help them to talk to each other and to listen to each other. And as it's a starting, I went there four times. It's a, quite a lot, until 1999. I, I, I went to those different countries, including in Kenya for a, a meeting in a neutral venue. Um, and it, it, it helped me to understand, first of all, the seriousness of this type of violence, particularly the genocide, but also something similar in Burundi, but also the problem of the common history. And I discovered that in a situation of conflict, people don't see the history the same way. The history is contested. If you like, the memory is contested. 
And I have this idea at the back of my mind. I did all sorts of other things. And then in 2014, I had the opportunity to go again to Rwanda. And I, I said, maybe I could do something because I have the right training. I'm a bit, I know them very well, but I'm, I'm not, I'm from outside. And then I, I raised funds at the National Research Foundation in South Africa. And then I embarked on this project. That's how it happened. Yeah. And, you know, before reading your book, I had a very basic understanding of what led to, as you classify it, the ideological classification of Hutu and Tutsi within Rwanda. I did not realize that the theory or the classification had a specific name, that being the hematitic theory. So what is this theory and what role did, you know, missionaries play in the creation and usage of this theory? Yeah, but before I answer that question, I would like to expand a bit on what you said yourself of this ideological cause of the genocide. And it's we may we may discuss it further later, but briefly, we need to understand what a genocide is about. Yeah. Uh, this word has, has been used in all sorts of contexts, including in Ukraine, for example, now. But people don't pay attention what it is really a genocide is the intention to exterminate a group of part of a group for political, religious, and precisely ideological reasons. So it's to exterminate an entire group, which actually happened in Rwanda. Uh, one could say that at least three quarters of all Tutsi living in Rwanda in April 1994 were killed. Now, why do I say that? Because they are all throughout history, until now, for example, in Ukraine and other, or other parts, like in Sudan, etc., or in Yemen, it's not only in Ukraine, but of course Ukraine is, is present to our mind at the moment. There are, there are lots of wars, and, and there are war crimes, and there are people disappearing, etc. But it could be in the context of a conflict. A genocide is something at a high level, if you like. It means there's a reason for what we, we used to say for the Jews, a final solution. The final solution, let's kill them all until the last. And you need an ideology for that. You don't do that just, just because there's a conflict. No, you need something before, which has been built up over the years in the population so they can accept this 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 idea completely mad, actually. It's crazy to kill them all until the last. Now, that's where the ideological factor comes in. Now, I answer your question about the hamitic theory. And I don't know if you've been to Rwanda or Burundi, and people from Westerners easily fall into the trap of accepting the idea that there's an essential difference between the two, that they are literally, if I could say, black and white. And in fact, it's, it's, it's not at all like that. It's far more complex. And certainly, it's, it's not even a racial difference, not even a cultural difference, not even an ethnic difference between the two. Because an ethnic difference we've got in South Africa is, for example, the Zulu and the, the, the Sutu, et cetera, et cetera. It's something more subtle. And, but this ideology, the Hamitic theory, and I will explain what it is, has created the impression that you have like two blocks, two people opposed completely forever. They've always been opposed, they'll be opposed forever because they are fundamentally different. And why is it called Hamitic theory? It's come from Ham or Cam, which is a biblical figure. 
And the first explorers to this part of the world in the 19th century, more precisely the 1860s, were struck by the fact that, actually not in Rwanda, it was in Uganda, but it was similar. They were apparently a physical and moral and sort of difference of development between black people. And they came to the conclusion, some blacks are not from here. They come from far. They cannot be local. Otherwise, they would be the same. And then came, it is a pure theory with no foundation whatsoever. It was, it's a myth, actually, that they were coming from Ethiopia or, I don't know, Nubia, or even they were Jews. In fact, that sort of myth, if you know a bit African history, is coming to the whole of Africa. It's the same myth in Nigeria with the Yoruba. It's the same myth in South Africa with the Venda. So actually, it's always a way of explaining that some people, we don't, they are so different, they are, they are fundamentally strangers. They're not local. They don't belong to us. That's why we can get rid of them. And the same theory that those people actually from outside, and they were in a way closer to Western, fitted the idea very common in colonial time that is a scale in human beings. We've obviously the white people on top and the Bantu, most black people at the bottom. And then among the black, there were also a scale with, if you like, blacks more developed, closer to the whites and other black people. So it's profoundly racist. It's a sort of pre-Darwinian theory. Now, the first people who went to Rwanda and Burundi uh, absorbed this idea that is a scale of human beings, that some are higher than others, that they are fundamentally different. Some are pastoralists and some agriculturalists. Some have always been there, some came later, etc., etc. None of that was true. Unfortunately, the, the Tutsi elite um, accepted this ideally and developed it themselves. So the so-called, uh, the missionaries who did some anthropological work um, were not critical enough. So in brief, this idea has been feeding the, the psyche in Rwanda all along, and it's still there, it's not gone. Although uh, academically it's completely discredited but in the mind of people is still there. I've seen it myself. That's in a, in a nutshell. Well, let me just add something. Does it mean there's no difference between Tutsi and Hutu? No, there are, there's some difference. In fact, the word Tutsi and Hutu go back to the 18th century. But what we need to know is this not, they were not two blocks. They were sort of group of lineages, like family groups, if you like, who, who were, the difference between the two were fluids, they were not strict, there were no strict boundaries. It was more socioeconomic, actually, and political than actually ethnic or racial. Uh, but there's been a, a phenomenon of political concentration around a certain king in, in Rwanda, it's called Mwami, in Nyanza, what, and around a group with, that were called Tutsi. And uh, in fact, only some of those were part of this group of wealthy and politically influenced people. They were still, and they still are today, poor Tutsi. So it's, it's very complex, but it has been oversimplified, petrified, to give the idea there are two groups, and a bit like the Jews, 
uh, during the time of Hitler, if you get rid of the Tutsi, everything will be fine. They are the problem. They are the problem. Exactly like Hitler thought, let's kill all the Jews and then the German people will be happy. It's similar. Yeah, and I think many know that the genocide took place between April 1994 and July 1994, but there's also a 30-year period of violence prior to this um, that's being taken place against uh, Tutsi. Could you tell us about that period and how the Catholic Church and Presbyterian Church responded to this 30-year period of violence? Okay, let me first take the first part of your question, what preceded the genocide, and then I'll come to the churches. And you're right, because I couldn't do everything, I focused on two, there are others, of course. But let's first come up that history. What happened is that until the late 1950s, it was still colonial times. Rwanda was initially a German protectorate after the first, Second World, the first World War. It was handed over to the Belgium. This was Belgian. So you have essentially colonial agents and, and Belgian missionaries. Until the late 50s, because of this ideology, they gave a, a lot of advantages to, the, to those they called the Tutsi access to school, access to various positions. Most of the chiefs and deputy chiefs were Tutsi, etc., etc. Then with independence coming, the Hutu elite started to be restless and claim some recognition and more power. And then in 1959, it's a key it's called a social revolution. It's key to understanding the, the genocide phenomenon in all Rwandan history. The turning point is 59. Brutally, in just in a very short time, the Belgian colonial government and the Catholic Church, headed by a bishop called um, Perrodin, decided to change their alliance. Instead of supporting the Tutsi, they suddenly supported the Hutu. And that created a lot of confusion and violence. And then the first massacres happened in actually in November 1959. And it continued. There's been in 1960, 61, a very big one, 63, 64, another big one in 73. Then when a group of Tutsi refugees from Uganda came in 1990, in October, then again, lots of massacres. <clears throat> in a war with war casualties on both sides. So the genocide will be seen as the end of a long process of violence, but with the authorities on one side first, then suddenly on the other side. Now I come to the church and the missionaries with gradually a, a bigger and bigger number of African uh, priests or pastors and bishops. Now, <laughs> In 1959, I mentioned Perodin, André Perodin, the, the Bishop of Capgai in the center of Rwanda. He was convinced, I cannot blame him, he was convinced there was a, a deep injustice and that the Hutu were victimized by the Tutsi. He accepted the hermetic theory fully. He spoke of race. He's the one he contributed to what became the genocide by emphasizing the difference between the two groups. He has the idea a good Christian will support the victims of injustice and now support the Hutu, not knowing that he was fueling, he was developing a, a, a violence. Now, when the first massacres happened, 
The leadership of the Catholic Church tended to say, well, we must understand them, it's normal, they've been victims. They did not recognize the danger of targeting a group for what it is, for being Tutsi. They were wishy-washy. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't really condemn the violence. And the same in 1963-64, the same in 1973, they were extremely ambiguous. And then between 1994, same thing. A certain, at least one bishop, has been rather good, and the one in, in New York also, but on the whole, between uh, this period of four years, which is very, very difficult and tense, the, the, the Catholic Church, and then I speak after of the Presbyterian Church, the Catholic Church failed to recognize that the problem was precisely the hermetic theory to target the group of what it is. And they basically said half-half, everybody is responsible. They did not, if you like, unpack the problem, which is, well, this idea that one group is fundamentally different and is targeted for that reason. Now, the Protestant churches in colonial times were marginal because the colonial government and the, and the church, the Catholic church, were so powerful that they didn't give much attention to the Protestant churches. And the same at the beginning of the independent period. But then when Juvenal Abiramena, the one who became the president and the one who was actually killed in a plane accident in a, his plane was shot down and that would trigger the genocide in 1994. That man, he, he, he was, if you like, more balanced, and he started to recognize the Protestant churches. As a result, the Protestant churches, to, re, to, to remain part of the game, closed their eyes also on the violence against the Tutsi. Same thing. So in a way, Catholic and Protestant are pretty much the same. The only one who, are, who may be different, but that's not even true, is Islam. There's a theory according to the, the Muslims were actually not involved in a genocide, but even that is not so clear. So uh, for my work, I chose to focus on Presbyterian Church because it's the oldest historically in Rwanda, but also, and I will talk about it later, because they are the only one who, who, who made a full confession of guilt after the genocide in December 1996. So there's an interesting contrast between the Catholics and Presbyterians. The Anglicans, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, not really. In fact, they apologize even less than the Catholics. So I took those two because the attitude, the, the way they, they related to the genocide, after the genocide, uh, were both very interesting. Right, yeah, and, and keeping with your research and your, your methodology there for a second, you know, you interview 92 people for this project, including genocide survivors and perpetrators, as you call them. Can you tell our listeners about this interview process and what were some challenges that you ran into? Yeah, there's a lot to say. First of all, as a person, as a human being, it was an incredibly difficult but also enriching experience to gain the trust of people who have gone through horrible things, who are grateful that you listen to them, open up, keep in touch, I developed friendships and on both sides. And that's what I would like to emphasize. Remember the starting point of this project is when I discovered that Hutu and Tutsi not have the same view of history. And that's what explains 
to a large degree while the genocide is still denied today, because unfortunately, there's a lot of denial of the genocide against the Tutsi, internally, but especially um, abroad in the West. Now, it's because of a different type of re relationship to history. The, a certain number of Hutu, not all of them, they still get stuck in 1959. For them, they are victims forever. While the Tutsi are also victims, but for a, di a different type of violence culminating in the genocide. Now, I made a point of listening to people on both sides, which few scholars have done. There's a tendency among scholars to either you only try to commemorate the genocide documented, which is valuable, of course, needs to be done, and there are excellent works on that. But in a way, they have no time for those who are not clear on the genocide, resist to recognize it, etc., etc. And in the middle of that conflict, it's not only the genocide, it is a judgment on the current government, the one who actually part of the war between April and July 94, the, the one patriotic front, for example, President Kagame. And part of the international opinion is very critical of the current government and the current president, so much so that they have no time for the genocide. All what they're interested in is to show that the current government is wrong. It's very polarized, including academics and, of course, church people. I try to resist that and to listen to both. And I must say it worked, it worked well because it helped me to enter into the complexity of the situation. I came to the conclusion that it's a, it's a duty to um, remember the genocide, to document it, to denounce it, and to denounce the denial. So my position is very clear on the genocide. But I also think that those who deny it on the other side, if you like, we need to give them a chance to say their, their position. We need at least to explain why they say what they say and they do what they do. That's why I, I spent a lot of time interviewing people, not only in Rwanda, but also in Europe particularly in France, Belgium, Italy, and England, and neighboring countries in, in Burundi and in the Congo, and South Africa, actually. So I, I threw the, the, the net very wide. Now, how did it go? Well, it's very simple in a way. There's a lot of mistrust among Rwandan people. It takes a while before they give their trust. Because of the, the trauma, because of politics, some are on one side, others on the other side. They wonder who you are, why you ask those questions, what you're gonna do with the interview. So it takes quite a long time to create trust. And I did it using my uh, quality, in some cases as an academic, in some, and for others, I introduced myself as a Dominican brother. I have the South African nationality, but I was born in Belgium. I have two passports. Sometimes I use one, sometimes I use the other one. <laughs> to gain trust. And I all never went to somebody's trade. I always had to be recommended. They need to know who you know before they open. Uh, and they did open it, as I said, extremely moving. In addition, and uh, I'm sure you saw that when you read the book, I did a lot of archival work, I spent an enormous amount of time trying to find written documents before, during, and after the genocide. And it's, it's a slow work because it's scattered. You don't find everything at the same place. Sometimes it takes you three years to find a certain document. But I did that because I have the right training. So I, I crossed the two. 
when I interviewed people, I said, I read this and this. And the written documents allowed me to ask sharper questions. And, and then I would then go, go back to the archives and read the archives differently because I've listened to people. So it, that's a typical historical method, actually. Everybody does that. But I did it systematically and for a long time, which I think when you said I'm the first one to deal with the topic is true and not true. There's an American colleague. Uh, maybe one day we'll listen to this uh, interview called Timothy Longman. He, he worked on the same topic as me, but he stopped in 1995 and spoke essentially on the Presbyterian Church, although he also deals with the Catholic Church. But I mean, his main fieldwork took the topic in a, if you like, in a broader way. And he knows my book because he reviewed it. So I'm not really the first one. And then now there's an American um, uh, Rwandan colleague called Paul Routaisiré, who did excellent work as well, and then Tarsis Gatois. But I'm the first one to have done the sort of broad analysis of the problem with a systematic search for testimonies and archives. And in brief, that's what I can say, can say on the method. But it's important to understand, I try to listen to everybody, which few people do. Yeah, and I think that's a really important aspect of your book because it, it gives the whole event and the years leading up to the genocide and then the years after the genocide a much fuller picture than if we just focus on, say, the victim's testimony, which is incredibly important to listen to. But something I didn't realize before reading your book was that those who committed violence uh, invoked the names of Jesus, God, or Mary when justifying their actions. Could you talk about that religious discourse and what it tells us about religion's role in the genocide? Sure, sure, sure. Actually, we're still busy, we, the Committee of Historians, to understand the genocide. The work is not finished after 28 years. And I'm part of a network called Rwanda Map of young colleagues, I'm the oldest, to continue to document it. So what I try to say is work in progress. And I will talk about it later. The biggest problem of the churches, Catholic, Presbyterian and others has been in silence, but some church members, some Christian and even sometimes some priests and pastors went one step further and actively participated in the genocide. Now, it's related to what I spoke about before, the hermetic theory, this idea that is a radical difference between Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda and that they are really enemies and that they should be completely separated. And because of the a very strong Christian culture in Rwanda, let me say, in a certain way, the missionaries have been successful because Christianity is, is very much present. In a way, they failed because Christianity didn't stop the genocide. So it's, it's both ways. Anyway, those, the, the so-called Hutu extremists, when in, in 1990, when Tutsi army from Uganda invaded Rwanda from the north, they started to resuscitate a, a discourse violently anti-Tutsi, presenting the Tutsi as the enemies. And they used religious symbols to, to do that. They spoke, for example, of the 10 commandments of the Hutu. And more importantly, they developed the idea that, and I say it in my, my book, that God abandoned the Tutsi. 
It's a sort of indirect criticism of the missionaries who initially, as I explained before, gave the advantage to the Tutsi. And this idea that the Tutsi have the upper hand, the Tutsi always dominate, the older Tutsi always win, the Tutsi have God on their side, have Mary on their side, have Christ on their side. And, and linked to that, and I didn't explain it, this is a sort of representation that Tutsi are more beautiful than the Hutu. They are physically different. True or not true, I can't say, because I personally often can't distinguish a Hutu from a Tutsi when I meet them at a meeting or in the street. But it's true that some Tutsi are a bit different physically, they're taller, etc. And this, this sort of image that they are beautiful Tutsi women, <laughs> this idea. And that, that's for, that has something to do with Mary. Or handsome men. So those extremists wanted to use religion to pursue their aims, which is to develop hatred against the Tutsi and get rid of all Tutsi. They said, we need in a way to purify religion, to make religion Hutu only, and to make it clear that God has abandoned the Tutsi. And for that, it was a language on radio, there's an infamous radio called RTLM, Radio Television Libre de Milcolin, which was broadcast all the time and, and calling people to kill. It was horrible. I mean, this, this, um, this radio has done, I mean, more than criminal, actually. It's, it's, it's incredible to call for murder day after day before and during the genocide. So they, they told stories uh, about Mary's with us, Christ is with us, Jesus with us, etc., etc. And then they also did something when, I, when I, I, I heard about it, I didn't believe it, but I saw it. It's iconoclasm. It means they started to go from church to church and cut the head of the statues of Christ and, and Mary, because they said, if they look beautiful, I mean, they are Tutsi, you must cut their head. For example, is a Jesuit center in Kigali, Centre Christus. I can't see one. Uh, so it's some in a place called Yamasheke and Changugu, but it's everywhere. So those who two extremists, actually, they, they attacked the statues. <laughs> so it, it goes to, there's a certain mix between religion and violence, in fact. We, we cannot help observing that. So uh, this, this Utu extremist movement, it went very far. Another thing, and that's more for Protestants, they manipulated the Bible. They, 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 they said the Bible tells us that we can kill the Tutsi because the, the Bible, uh, I, I quote that in the book, there's a certain pastor in the eastern part of the country, he said, the Bible doesn't tell us that we should not kill the Tutsi, it means we can't kill them, which is crazy actually. Completely crazy, because <laughs> if you look at the gospel, there's nothing to do with Hutu and Tutsi, obviously not. And if you have something to say that all people are creatures of God. So it was an heresy, actually. It was just mad. But that also false theology uh, was very, very strong. And one, one of the main uh, priests who've been involved directly in the, in the genocide, his name is Atana Seromba. He literally gave order for a bulldozer to bulldoze the East Church with thousands of Tutsi people inside who all died. 
is actually been condemned at the International Tribunal, Criminal Tribunal in Arusha, is now in jail in Benin. Well, he said very clearly, I'm a Hutu before I'm a Christian. I'm a Hutu before a Christian. It was, that's, that's what ideology is important. Nationalism is very dangerous. It's a lesson we need to remember. Any form of nationalism is highly dangerous, including in Western countries. But that's an extreme form of nationalism to say that we are Hutu, the same way that the Germans said we are Aryan. You know, it's, it's that sort of... So it, it, it was covered with a religious language. And thank you for the question. <laughs> and sticking with the churches for a minute, many of these churches in Rwanda were sites of violence, as you just said, you know, where Hutu and Interamwe would go and attack those who sought shelter there or would attack members of the religious orders who were attempting to protect Tutsi. But as you also have explained now and have mentioned, you know, the churches as a whole, including the Catholic Church, failed to acknowledge the genocide. Was there failure a form of complicity? What were the repercussions of this failure? Yeah, it's, it's an important point to explain and to explain properly. And it took me a while to understand. To, be, to tell you the truth, I was confused for a long time. What happens is that on the other side, this Tutsi army, they were not angels, especially when you wage a war, a war is dirty. You kill people in a war. And um, yeah, and also it's true that until 1959, the Tutsi were, as I say, privileged by the colonial government and by the church, tended to, some of them, not all, some of them were arrogant, you know, they were too proud of themselves and they were despising the others. So far from it, the idea to say that all wrongs are on one side. No, they were not. The genocide is on one side. Yes, there's been only one genocide against the Tutsi, but not that the, 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 the Tutsi army, etc. They, they there are a certain number of human rights abuse, although we need, there's no real research what they are because it's too politicized, it's too ideological. Anyway, well, constantly from 59 until 1994 and even after, and even for some people, this is idea, okay, maybe the genocide is, is not nice, it's not so good, but the Rwanda Patrick Fund did the same, it's half-half. And this idea of a balancing between the two has been a constant response of the Catholic Church and I would say the other churches as well. The balancing, yeah. And when the genocide started, the 6th or I would say the 7th of April, the immediate response has been of the church authorities when let's bring back peace, let's stop the violence. And you cannot say they remain silent as such. No, they made a certain number of statements, which in some cases were broadcast on radio. And we've got the text. Individual bishops in the bishops' conference, and then on two occasions, an ecumenical group with Protestant and Catholic leaders, including Anglican and Methodist and Presbyterian. So they did actually say something, but at no point they denounced the genocide as genocide, and no, which was massive. There's a dispute, a discussion about the number of victims. I won't go into that, but it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Tutsi have been killed everywhere. And many of them in churches. There's 
probably 50 churches where people were invited to congregate thinking they would be saved, but it was a trick to kill them easily. 50 churches in a small country. I don't know the United States very well, but I mean, it's a third of KwaZulu-Natal, my province. It's very small. It's actually much smaller than Belgium. Not much, but I mean, smaller than Belgium, for example. So it's a small country. And 50 churches that were used as a, as a killing place, that's enormous. And at no moment, this particular phenomenon of genocide, let's accept they didn't know the word, although the word was used before. I have testimonies of that. In fact, many people knew, knew the word genocide. But anyway, let's accept that they knew the word. But you could say, stop to, to kill the, the Tutsi because they're non-combatants. They, they, there's nothing to do with this war. They are not soldiers. They are just men, women, and children, and old people killed one after the other. I know so many families when they all died without except with maybe one or two. It's so sad, just like the Jews. So the, I, 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 I must say, and that's an important part of this research, that was not denounced as such. And there's the argument nationally and locally, if those church people who were respected are spoken with a clear voice, stop it. Uh, <clears throat> the Tutsi have done nothing wrong, nothing to do with the war. If you, if you want to fight the war, become a soldier, Join the army. That's fine. If you, if you have something against the Tutsi, let's call a tribunal. Let's judge them. That would have been a, a normal response. Because in any situation, there are laws of the war, and a, a war can be acceptable under certain conditions. And criminals may be taken to court. No, not killed one after the other like it's been done in big, big numbers. So nothing on that has been said. I couldn't find a single statement which says um, the Tutsi are targeted because they are Tutsi. Not fun. It's all about, in fact, the, the tone of many of those statements is more against the Tutsi army than the, the local army, the Rwandan army. They tend to condone the government, which is actually busy organizing the genocide. So that's where we have a problem with the church, whether they acknowledge that or not. We go, maybe we're going to talk about it later. But I think that's something to analyze properly. And I hope that my book will contribute of, to clarify the issue of the responsibility of the churches in the genocide. The same way we need to do the same work, for example, for the Nazi regime or apartheid or colonialism or slavery, et cetera, et cetera, or the pedophilia. Filial Catholic Church, all those phenomena need a proper analysis first. And then we look at who is responsible for what, and is the church as such responsible, which, as I can say, it was. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, as you've mentioned earlier, you know, the Presbyterian Church has given an outright apology, while the Catholic Church has not apologized for their role or those who have been convicted. Yeah. Of, okay. yeah. Let, let's talk know. about. Yeah. I will talk first about the Presbyterian Church, as you did in the Catholic Church. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to. In, in no way to present, to, to polarize the two and say they are good and bad guys. Actually, first of all, there are, there are lots of very good people in the Catholic Church and also many victims. About 100 priests 
mostly Tutsi, not all, but mostly Tutsi have been killed, and bishops. And, and there are many heroes on the Catholic side. So I don't want to, to, to say one against the other. That would be wrong. That would be wrong completely. But it's correct that there's a certain dynamic in the Presbyterian Church that is not well known. I mean, although Presbyterians don't know it very well, which I explain in the following way. The Presbyterian Church was very compromised. The president called Michel Togiraesu, particularly, he was pro, close to the, the government. He was a personal friend of some of the killers. In his church, they were killers. And um, the survivors, and I've spoken to some of them, particularly one called Aaron, are very clear about that. He was more than ambiguous. He was innocent on in one side. Although he didn't kill anybody directly, but when people were killed very close to him, he said nothing. And then after, and that's the, the important point, he and, and a big, almost entirely the ship of the church fled to, to Zaire because after the genocide, uh, between 1.5 and 2 million people went to Zaire and there were enormous refugee camps. And within them, the old churches reconstituted themselves, including the Presbyterian Church. They all went there. And only a small number of Presbyterians remained in the country. But now those in, in Zaire never came back. Um, some were killed, some went to Europe, Michel Togiais who went to the United States, etc. Which means that those who remain in Rwanda, in a way, it was easy for them to adopt a clear position because they didn't deny the genocide at all. They saw it too clearly. And they rec recreated the church. And uh, they chose a leader who was actually in Kenya at the time called Andre Karamanga was very good. And because of these particular circumstances, they chose to be very clear. And they apologized for their church as a church for its silence and its compromise. With a text, which uh, there's a whole chapter in my book about the Presbyterian Church, which actually is quite remarkable because they, they, they call a spade a spade. No, they, they're very clear. Now the Catholic Church, as I said, was diverse, and it's a big finding of my research. You, you cannot put all Catholics in the same bag, not at all. And I found that in the country, in, that, in July, August, September, immediately, a certain number of Catholics, even in Europe, even in Belgium, said, yeah, something went wrong. We did not evangelize the people. We should change our method. So quite a number of Catholics took the genocide seriously. And there's so many examples. For example, in Butari, Nyundo, I mean, I don't have the time to go into details. Um, but unfortunately, the uh, apostolic vi visitors like the Nunso, the representative of Rome, was more on the side of the old government. He, he, he was politicized. He was on one side. So the bishops, as a bishop conference, decided not to talk about the genocide on purpose. They said, we don't use that word. After one year, they did cautiously. So they took a bad start, the bishops. It was actually a weak, weak bishops conference. Three of them had been killed, and, and those have been traumatized by the genocide. Actually, it was not, not a strong conference. And as I said, um, this man who was the sort of nuncio played a very negative role. It's only after 97, 98, 99 that they started to understand, yes, we need to talk about it. And they did in each of the diocese a, a synod, which was quite good. And they started to have um, 
group where people talk to each other. It's called a Christian gachacha. And then they had a jubilee celebration in 2000. So they went a long way, I would say. And it's the last chapter of my book. Towards recognizing the reality of the genocide. But because they were internally divided, they were not clear enough. They said, okay, maybe some priests have done the wrong thing. Maybe the bishops at the time lacked discernment. I read the text today and the, the, the word they used, they lacked discernment, but they were not clear. Same thing in 2016, they did a, a, a new declaration. And that's the situation today. Pope Francis, in after a, a meeting with President Kagame Rwanda, he went one step further and recognized the institutional responsibility of the church and asked forgiveness, not to the survivors, but to God. Unfortunately, it's just, we just have the press conference report. It's not a public statement of the Pope himself and even less of this conference. So we're still a bit in a no man's land in the Catholic Church regarding the recognition of the genocide. But it's certainly much, much better than immediately after the genocide. So I don't want to blame them too much, but they should go one step further. And that creates anger among the genocide survivors in the current government. I can tell you this anger still now, the, the still tension. Now, with regard for the Anglicans, for example, and I've not spoken much, I didn't study them. There's also a different type of dynamics. Most all leadership also left like the Presbyterian were replaced by leadership, for example, from Uganda, and they moved to the other extreme. They aligned themselves with the current government to a large degree, which is good in a way, but doesn't solve the problem of a genuine recognition of the genocide. The Adventists are very unclear. I've not heard much on the side of the Methodist. Yeah, you should take them one by one. <laughs> there is so much to say. There is so much to say. You're right. Yeah. And I want to talk a bit about the post-genocide Rwanda and what the Catholic Church has done to preserve the memory of the genocide, if any, or their role in it. Well, it's a continuation of the same topic in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, you have some Catholics who did a lot to remember the genocide. In fact, I discovered, and I think I'm correct, the first memorial ever built was actually in the cathedral of Niundo, which is close to Congo, a place, close to a place called Gizeni. And this is actually on the cover of the book, that I chose it. And uh, in a place when I did um, a special study, I did a case study in a, in a parish called Congonil. There as well, a local Catholic who was a Tutsi, a survivor because he lost his wife and two children. He managed to escape with two other children to cross the Lake Kivu and, and to survive. So he became the mayor of a small town and he also built a memorial. Now there, there has been a controversy in uh, 95 and 96 and 97 between the, the government and the authority of the Catholic Church on whether or not to transform the churches into a museum. They eventually came to a compromise. Two became a museum and the others, you had the memorial in front. Like you have, for example, in Kibuye, you've got that in, um, in Kigali, etc. So there's some memorialization of the genocide. It seems to me after many years, less so than before. But this is a memorialization. 
And if you take the, the Presbyterian, there's a place called Wemera Onkondo, and there you have an enormous memorial as well. So, in fact, if you go to Rwanda today, there are memorials everywhere because the government is pushing for it, and a certain number in front of churches. So whether in their heart, the Catholic authorities and the faithful want to remember the genocide, I think it's more complicated. Some, yes. Some, they prefer not to talk about it, they're embarrassed, so they, they continue. Yeah, I can see that. I don't want to, to name people, but this for some an ambiguity, we, we must be honest. And some also see the problem in the current government. As I say, it's very politicized. So yeah, in, in short, but I, I, I would say we cannot accuse the Catholic Church of not remembering the genocide. It did, particularly in this synodal process in the late 90s and in 2000. And also in 2004, the, the anniversary of the first 10 years, with the help of the Jesuit, for example, has been a big conference in the Centre Christus, which was actually quite remarkable in that sense. Yeah, and we have time for, I think, probably two more questions here. But, you know, I wanted to talk about the religious landscape in Rwanda today. You know, as we've talked about several times now, the Tutsi population was significantly reduced as a result of the genocide. So what does the religious landscape look like now for Catholic and Presbyterians in Rwanda? Yeah, let me say something about your, your comment that the populations were reduced. Yes, it's true. And in the, there's a discussion exactly the number of people who were victim to the genocide. And what is this relative, fairly big consensus on the fact that three quarters were exterminated. What we don't know is how many Tutsi exactly they were in April 1994. That's where the debate is about. That's why there's a discussion on numbers. But you also need to understand that there were about half a million Tutsi living in exile in Uganda, Tanzania, and, and Zaire or Congo. So those massively came back. So today the population of Tutsi remained important. It's, it's been diminished. So, so many people didn't produce children because of also the reason, the war, the genocide, the trauma, etc., etc. There's been a loss of people because of fewer children. So that's to answer the question of the numbers. But the religious landscape, it's an important question. And I can answer a few things. First of all, many survivors were angry at the church because they didn't denounce the religion side, said nothing, and left the church. Some remained, actually. Some just left all religious practice. I know, I know quite a few. Some became Pentecostals. So you've got a reshaping of religious landscape with many more Pentecostals. At the same time, we need to accept that throughout Africa, and I know South Africa very well, it's not unique to Rwanda. In fact, in some countries, there are even more Pentecostal churches than in Rwanda, in fact. And some people predicted that the Catholic Church would collapse because of its lack of its silence, its ambiguity. In fact, it hasn't. And now, strangely enough, the Catholic Church is actually quite dynamic and vibrant. I, I, was, I was there uh, about a month ago in uh, Kigali. And as I explained at the beginning, I'm a Dominican. And I always stay in the Dominican community today. The, the, the church is packed. And it's the all sort of Catholic movement, this and this and that. Strangely enough, and the seminaries are full. I went to give a talk in Kapgai in the seminary. I had two or 300 students in front of me in the seminary, the other seminary. And in all parishes, you've got young priests. So actually, 
ironically, the Catholic Church has been very compromised, very, very criticized. After five to ten years, we started and more modest. It has learned a good lesson. Let's not mix with politics. Let's keep clean of politics. So they've actually more sober and more modest than they were before. This being said, in total, the, the ratio between Catholics and people in Rwanda is lower because precisely of the rise of Pentecostalism. In brief, that's what it is. But I would say it's a, it's a very Christian country, Rwanda. And despite the genocide, I think on the whole, to me, and actually the current government, they have they're critical of the Catholic Church and the other churches, but mostly the Catholic Church. But among them, there are lots of uh, minister, cabinet ministers who are good Catholic, they, they go to mass. <laughs> so it's, it's not not like it's not, not at all a Western scenario in Rwanda, not at all. Nothing to do with Western Europe or the US from that point of view. There's no decline, visible decline of the Catholic Church. Well, my last question for you, I see we're running out of time. My last question is, what projects are you currently working on? You know, I know the book just came out, but are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on the genocide against the Tutsi that you plan to pursue or has your work taken a new direction? Uh, it's both. I we there will be a big conference in Butare, which is called Huye, in uh, September, and the invitation is a certain of French academics and 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 uh, Rwandan University to discuss the role of France in the genocide, and I will talk about this topic of the churches and the genocide. Just to say that the research continues. I have many colleagues who continue. I think what you need is more case studies to touch the reality of the genocide. And I have one project, I've mentioned Capgai a few times because it's, it was the, the historical center of the Catholic Church. There's been lots of killings. And anyway, I don't want to go into the details. I would like to continue to do, to do case studies a certain of areas which I didn't I touch too superficially in the book. And recently I've published a study on the issue of the denial in the, in the churches for a book on denialism published in the UK. So I continue, but I would like having done this in tremendous amount of work on Rwanda to go back to my first field of research, which is South Africa and apartheid and go to revisit the issue of the response of the churches to apartheid with this sort of experience of Rwanda. And that's what I'm doing now. And it's going to be a book in the years to come. Um, I've done a few case studies. And anyway, it's a big project. And also, I'm interested in the issue of race relations in the Catholic Church. This is a very important topic to do all over the world, including the US, with the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. So at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm working on another book on race relation among the Dominican sisters in Natal, because it's, it's, there was a particular issue that happened at a certain time. So yeah, I have many projects. So I'll, I'll continue with Wanda, and I, I will, I hope, in fact, I also have been asked, and I, I hope it's going to happen in that way, to, to work with survivors, to help them to, to process the history even more with all the, the background I have. There's a group of women in a place called Mushubati. Somebody asked me to do some 
workshops there. And I've already started, but I would like to do more. So yeah, <laughs> I have many projects. <laughs> well, they all sound uh, really fascinating and I can't wait to read them myself when they are published. Thank you, Philippe, for being on the podcast. And Alison, thank you so much for your time and for your interest. And, yeah. Um, it, it will allow you association to maybe to understand better what it's about and maybe p- people beyond yeah, yeah we need we need to talk we need to talk about wonder even in south africa you know people are self-centered they see their own problem it's, it's important to open up to other parts of the world and to broaden our views and thank you for your contribution to that it's excellent thank you so much yeah well this has been new books in catholic studies a new books network podcast